With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it is Adam Spinella. Spins has had a long day. He's had a tough one. But we're here. We're fighting through it. Yeah. What's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Thanks for, uh, I know we're getting started here maybe two hours later than we had initially hoped on the podcast here. Some car <laughs> there, trouble There are going to be like five people that watch this episode. We're starting super late. Like, we're off on time. I literally just like started this recording now. It's going to be amazing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be our least watched live episode ever. You know what? I'm all right with that because I'm probably in like rare form right now and, and the least presentable that I'll ever be on the pod. You might get rare spins tonight where I'm breaking down some barriers and really letting you see uh, what I get like when I'm flustered. You know, we uh, supposed to get home two hours ago. Just a, a quick story here. Uh, car broke down tonight on the way home from a rental car place, believe it or not. So made a trip to New York City for work and got a rental car. Uh Dropped it off at the lot and taking my own car, the 10-minute trip home from the this rental car enterprise spot to our house. And uh, the automatic, I don't even know what you want to call it, the auto engine shut off at every red light that I get to, turns on as I get to a red light, and the battery just dies in the car. Won't move, yeah, won't turn tough. on. So uh, I am cursing out the gods of Jeep right now and hoping that this can get fixed pretty quickly, but not the ideal way to be spending a a Sunday night after a three and a half hour uh, drive back from New York city. So you, uh, you have a Jeep. That's beautiful. I I did not know that about you. Did not know you were a Jeep guy. When I was super young, I think I wanted like the, do you remember the old Wrangler that like, was part convertible kind of like that's that's what i wanted yeah 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 i got a i got a i bought a brand new car a 2020 cherokee about two months before the pandemic like (laughs) leased my life away to be able to afford a new car and then it sat there for the next 18 months not being used at all this is now the second time i've had a battery issue in the last month or so so like uh, i'm i'm really really happy right now let's just put that i'm thrilled and and you know what the cure to all of this is sam like talking hoops and nba and nba draft with you like let's just fucking go tonight let's have a good one here do it let's do it we're gonna have a good time we got we got we got cursing spins on the pod we're rolling let's go (laughs) we're gonna start with the draymond green and jordan pool punch heard round the world look this is this is a Draymond friendly podcast for lo- for a long long time. Uh, I have been nothing more than the internet's foremost Draymond Green apologist. Uh, I have firmly been at bat 
fighting the good fight, saying that Draymond Green is one of the most underrated players in NBA history. Like, I, I think he's absolutely phenomenal. I think that he's the most impactful defensive player in the league. Uh, love Draymond Green unconditionally. Uh, what, what he did to Jordan Poole is unforgivable. Uh, for people who have been living under a rock for the last, I don't know, four days, I think is when it got reported, four days ago. Uh, a report started to come out of Golden State from the Athletics Shams Charania, as many things do, uh, that Draymond Green and Jordan Poole had an incident at practice where Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole. And, you know, it's announced that Draymond Green, uh, they handled it internally or whatever, and maybe there's a fine, no suspension, it seems like. Things are going to move forward. And then the video gets released. Uh, was that yesterday morning, uh, Saturday morning? I can't remember. Friday morning, I think. I don't remember. Friday morning. Saturday, Friday. Yeah, yeah. a couple, couple mornings ago. Yeah, Friday morning, video gets released. He just absolutely cold cocked him. It looked like, you know, from the video, they were talking back and forth a little bit. Jordan Poole says something to him. Draymond comes up to him, gets in his face. Jordan Poole shoves him away. Like, Draymond's, like, very much in his airspace. And... I don't really have beef with Jordan Poole, just kind of shoving him away like that in the way that he did. And then Draymond Green, like, just clocks him, uh, like Superman punches him, it looked like, uh, from a distance after getting that little bit of separation. (laughs) You you know, even Draymond Green at the press conference he did yesterday kind of seems to understand that what he did here was completely uh, just unacceptable in every capacity. There's not really a way to look... I go to bat for Draymond Green when others uh, don't because uh, I'm a big fan, but uh, this is just one of those situations where you can't do it. Uh, this is a completely unacceptable uh, in every capacity decision, and it's going to have real fallout, I think, on both the short and long term of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, just for reference here on the way that this all got leaked, it got leaked to TMZ and uh, And from what our Marcus Thompson at The Athletic said, it was the first time that some people within the organization had actually seen, like physically seen the punch and what happened. Because, you know, when you're in the middle of practice, like you have different little things happen when plays stop. Like some guys are paying attention to coaching happening over here. Some guys are paying attention to other things happening to the right. And it seemed like one of the situations when Jordan shoved him, it all happened so quick that a lot of people just didn't get eyes on it. But as Marcus said, like that video getting out was the first time that some people got eyes on it. And uh, because of that, now Draymond Green has chosen to uh, take an indefinite leave of absence uh, of some sort from the organization. Um, we'll see when he's back. Uh, you know, it, he said, it looks like Draymond Green uh, in his press conference said, I love Jordan Poole. That's my guy. Uh, like I said to Jordan, I will still ride for Jordan. I will still advocate for Jordan. I will still do anything that I can to make Jordan's job easy, to make Jordan look good, to get him the way, get him the things that he wants out of basketball that I can help from a teammate's perspective. That's that. My feeling toward Jordan does not change. It's the reason Jordan's locker is next to mine from day one. That dynamic has changed a little bit. It's on me to make that right and get it back. Okay. That's about four minutes of explaining the Draymond Green situation. 
What is your reaction when you first saw the Draymond Green punch? So when I watched the video, it was a very much the, – the first thought was it's a lot worse than I initially had, had thought. That the way that the report came out, that hear, hearing that there's likely going to be no suspension and it's all being handled internally, it's like maybe he threw a punch. It didn't necessarily land. Maybe it was just kind of a weak thing and a scuffle back and forth. Maybe Poole is doing something to instigate so they don't want to come down too hard on yeah. Draymond. A lot of that goes out the window once you first see the, the and, actual And just video. like, yeah, and like I just want to speak to that real quick and sorry to cut you off, but like just like in terms of thinking like a way to think about this, like Draymond Green is six foot five, six foot six, 230 pounds, let's call it, 225, 230 pounds. Like he is like UFC heavyweight size. Like he is a fucking enormous human being. And when guys who are enormous decide to put all of their power and all of their weight behind a punch, it's going to cause a problem. Like that's all. I think that that is as much as anything, like why the NBA is like deathly afraid of like there being fights in the league. And for instance, like NBA players going into the stands and fighting like these dudes are fucking lethal when they decide to punch. Like it is dangerous for NBA players to punch one another. Like, again, this is essentially like a UFC heavyweight sized human being, not to say that Draymond is like that level fighter, but like he is that size punching someone. Those dudes do damage to people. Like I, I it seems like Jordan Poole like does not have like permanent damage, but like that's, I think that's why this is as scary as it was probably for the organization. No doubt about it. And look, I, I've been uh, you know around teams in locker rooms for a long period of time. I've seen fights. I've broken up fights. I got ejected from my last intramural game in college because I was kind of a, a chippy son of a bitch myself. Uh, this is by far, you know, the probably the most violently thrown punch that I've seen that's landed a pretty egregious one. Uh, there's going to be some people out there that say, you know, it's an, an NBA. There's emotions flying all all over the place. Stuff like this happens. Not necessarily to the severity and definitely not yeah, like, kind of from a guy yeah. like Draymond who is supposed to be the heart and soul, the key, the protector. Like if you haven't read Marcus Thompson's piece over The Athletic, please do so. thought it was absolutely fantastic the way that he framed this about the relationships and the the really uh, individuals that are involved in this as opposed to just thinking about one teammate throwing a punch at the other. Cause I think that that's always really important to understand the individuals and the dynamics at play. Yeah. I mean, like I want to get back to that idea of him being like the culture guy, the big brother type. Um, but like, you know, violent punches like in league history that I can think of off the top of my head, like Kareem, uh on if i remember correctly kent benson like that was a pretty bad one kent benson got very injured from that um kermit washington to rudy tom Janovich, that was an incredibly dangerous one um nikola miritich when bobby portis punched him and if i remember correctly like broke an orbital bone um in a practice punch that i don't think we've seen publicly right. uh, i can't remember it off the top of my head like yeah, I guess you can say this stuff happens, but like most of the time when it happens, it's very damaging. Yeah. Like it is like a significant issue 
in terms of the other person's health. And I mean, like for, for Draymond Green to do it, like you brought up the idea of him being like the culture guy, like the big brother. I know that was a big thing that Marcus brought up. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where like the culture, like you just, I don't know. I'm not in there. Like, I don't know how the culture will react right. to this. I mean, right. well, I, I just it, don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot the last few days from a, a coach's perspective, right? What would I do if this happened on my team? If a couple players got involved in an incident like this, if I were Steve Kerr, Bob Meyer, whoever the higher ups in the organization, how would I try to manage this? And I think that there's going to be a lot of deep conversation, a lot of, taking the pulse on how everyone else feels about Draymond, about the incident, you know, you're going to have to rely on your other leaders to essentially yeah. come to uh, a lot of a point, whether that's Steph and clay, whether that's other veterans that are around assistant coaches, people who have a good relationship with both Draymond and, and pool and kind of say, how do we move forward from this? Can we move forward from this in a constructive way for the team so that this doesn't either become a distraction or that there's legitimate ways to coexist with those two in the future, because you can easily see a circumstance where an event like this, not just because it happened, but because it has now become such public knowledge in terms of what happened with the punch and and everybody's seeing the video, you know, when it's behind closed doors, it's not necessarily that you can handle it in a certain way. It's that not everybody has an opinion on it because they don't have all of the facts. They don't have, you know, video that's burned into their memory about it. And now that that's out, everybody is going to be asking questions about this on press conferences, on road trips. It could be something that comes up, you know, late into the into the season. Somebody's yeah. probably going to have a stat in February of Draymond's assist this year. And if Jordan Poole isn't in the top four of that, they're going to ask Draymond, are you not passing to Jordan Poole? Is there some lingering beef between you guys? Which, in yeah. my opinion, would be a ridiculous question to kind of ask because you don't always control who you share the floor with, who you you know get assists to. Um, but it's just now that it's more public knowledge, it's just another piece of weight that everyone in the organization kind of has to carry. And it's going to be a lot of work on their their veterans and their leaders to decide not just how, but if they can mend the relationship and move on in a way that isn't distracting or damaging to the group. Yeah. And look, I hope it does. Like, I hope it gets fixed. Like that's kind of what it comes down to for me because I love watching the Warriors play. Jordan Poole's been an incredible infusion to the splash brothers, like uh, especially, you know, with the ways that they can play off of someone like a Draymond green running dribble handoffs, his ability to drive and kick his short roll passing ability to kick outs to pool. Uh, There's just so many different ways that you can get creative with all of these guys, including Draymond green. Uh, the other part of this that's interesting is the long-term implication, right? Like Jordan Poole is a restricted free agent this offseason. Draymond Green has a player option for this season. What does this mean for the Warriors long-term is a real substantial question, I think, around the league right now. Like, what do they do? Like, does this open up the team to potential trade options at the deadline? Does this open up the team to potentially having to make a decision on Jordan Poole versus Draymond Green, which is kind of crazy. Like, I I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if we're going to get there. It's just absolutely, it's just absolutely mind numbing to me that this is the way that Draymond Green chose to handle this. Uh, look, he 
his the emotions have gotten better of Draymond Green previously. I get that, but I, I, this was not the way, unfortunately. Um, no, and, and I, I was I'm surprised that I, I'm just surprised that Draymond like let that happen. I guess is a guy that has not let this happen, not not let something like this happen before. I guess well, even if yeah. he has lost control of his emotions a little bit. Yeah, you you love a guy because of his emotions that he plays with, because of how spirited he is as a teammate and yeah. how much he has been kind of that culture driver for a long period of time. And, and you think that there's always going to be some semblance of control of that emotion because everything about the way that he plays and, and the way that he talks is very team first. And the, the way that he thinks, like, yeah. th- he's an incredibly intelligent human being. Yep. Like... Yep. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, it, it, it feels very team first and, and having something like this come to the surface that is the antithesis of culture and keeping the group together and doing anything that's in the best interest of the group seems very undraymond like despite it matching kind of his uh, sometimes lack of control over his emotional responses. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we will see the way that this all works out. Uh, the the first like sign here for me that I'm like looking to really check out is the Warriors have like an impending decision on a Jordan Poole extension here, like in the next week. Uh, that to me will say even more about the situation than Draymond's like return to the fold. Because look, like, First days, it's probably going to be a little bit raw. Like, you just never know. The Warriors have to make a very critical long-term decision here in the next seven days, essentially, on what is going to happen with Jordan Poole and if he is committing to the Warriors long-term, if they are committing to him and an absolutely astronomical tax bill long-term. Uh, I don't like I, That's the key. Like that. That's the big question for me here. Uh, yep. Where does this go from there? And I'm watching. A, I'm watching a little bit more as to whether Jordan Poole would want to continue having a, a contract negotiation extension. Obviously, from the Warriors' standpoint, they've got a lot to figure out with how much to offer and, and whether they want to commit to that. Yeah. But if I'm Poole, and, and you know that there is still a chance out there that the Warriors commit to Draymond long term, that hey, we know he and Steph together has to be what we use to maximize the title window. As long as Steph is here, we probably need Draymond. If that's the case and you're Jordan Poole, why would you rush to the deadline here to get an extension done when you don't know how that's going to play out for you long term? So uh, definitely fascinating. But for me, it's, it's whether Poole would even want to engage in those conversations right now. Yeah, very interesting. OK, let's move on. Let's talk Rob Polinka and his extension that will last until 2026. Uh, it aligns with Darvin Ham's contract with the Lakers. Interesting decision. Uh, I'm look, I know a lot of Lakers fans are just very disappointed with Rob Polinka right now in a lot of ways because he was the architect in theory. At least he was the person that completed, maybe not the architect. He was the person that completed the Russell Westbrook deal. Uh, I think that a lot of Lakers fans are disappointed with their summer this past year. I just wonder why now. With Rob Polinka, like, why did you feel like you needed to make this decision now? Um, you know, look, and, and also, like, sometimes these decisions get reported, like, after the fact. Like, it's possible that this extension has been done for a little while now. Like, it, you know, there is not as much transparency with front office extensions as there is with um, 
you know, extensions for players. Right. But like there's disappointment about the Lee, the Lakers off season. There's disappointment about the fact that Russell Westbrook still seems to be on the team from the fans. There's disappointment about acquiring Russ in the first place. There's disappointment about the way that this season has gone about um, the way a couple of the Lakers seasons with LeBron have gone. Really? He won them a title. Like he was the GM of a title team. Other than that, that's been the only successful season even remotely for Palenka so far. Why now? Why do you think they had to do this now is my question. <laughs> I I don't have a good answer for you, Sam. I, I, I really don't. Um, you know, I think Palenka, a lot of the moves that he, he's made, I haven't criticized as much as others. I think that there's been some sensibility in how he's constructed some things around the margins. I always think that when you have a superstar laden team with guys like LeBron James in particular on it, you're probably not 100% calling the shots on personnel decisions, especially when it comes to bigger sure. deals with a guy like Russell Westbrook. You know, it's a lot of, Hey, who do you want to play with? If we can make this happen w- would this please you guys with, with LeBron and AD. Yeah. So um, I, I don't, I don't hold Polinka's feet to the fire and that maybe as much as people do, but certainly don't understand why now is the right time for it. Not just an extent, that adds a couple more years onto it to 2026. That seems very long-term for kind of what he's shown thus far. Yeah. And and like, here's the thing with the Lakers, right? Uh, Really just a couple of things. So first and foremost, under Jesse Buss, the team scouting, I think has actually been pretty good. Like, I, I think that they do a good job, especially mining undervalued assets in the second round. Like that is, um, that's guys like Avita Zubots. That's guys like Larry Nance Jr. Um, you know, Taylor Horton Tucker, like say whatever you will about him as a player. He's a success story as a second round pick. They, they uh, found a second Clarkson. Yeah, they found Jordan they Clarkson found Jordan back Clarkson. in the day. Clarkson. Yeah. They found Thomas Bryant. Like they have mined late first, early second round, mid second round players, arguably as good as any other organization in the NBA. And they haven't really taken advantage of those. And that's not all on Rob. Some of this history goes back before Polinka got there. But to me, you look at that, the fact that the scouting department has been more successful than the actual front office machinations. You look at the fact that they do still make these like little mistakes, like signing Lonnie Walker Jr. for the full mid-level extension and not using some of that money to get an extra year on a rookie scale contract for Max Christie. That's just like a mistake. Like there's no reason why you don't want to use a minimum amount of your mid-level exception this year to get Max Christie on a three-year deal instead of a two-year deal. Because if Max blows up, you're in the same situation you are with Taylor Horton Tucker, where you have to pay Taylor Horton Tucker a substantial amount of money. Like it's, and by the way, Austin Reeves, another example of this, where they give Austin Reeves a two-year deal. Austin Reeves is going to be a free agent after this year. He's probably going to get paid like in not insubstantial amount of money. Like if he plays well this year, I guess is the way to put that. I just, there are enough warning signs here on the margins, um, not in terms of talent identification, but also in terms of just like what works for this team, right? Like surround LeBron with shooting, with playmaking, with rim protection. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of their preseason lineups, but 
it hasn't been ideal. Like they've been running out some Damian Jones with LeBron and AD. They've been running out like I still have some questions about Austin Reeves as a shooter. Like if you play like Austin Reeves and Russ at the same time, like it's a lot of pressure on Austin to be a great catch and shoot player. Uh, I hope he can be that. I think he has potential to be that based off of the tape at Wichita state, but you know, he's been a tangibly different player since he got to Oklahoma, um, you know, three years ago. And then in his first year with the Lakers than that, he's been more of almost a point guard in that time. And I think he can run some point for this team. I don't really like the Dennis Schroeder signing all that much. I, I just, I look at all of the moves that are front office, like general manager facing moves with the Lakers. And I'm like, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> I got some questions about this. I got some yeah. questions about that. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I, I I got some questions on why well, you felt like you had to do this now. Yeah. And, and look, my, my big thing with the Lakers and it's probably something that I beat like a dead horse um, is as LeBron has aged. And as we've seen Anthony Davis be his most successful those two guys need to be playing more of the four and the five together instead of the three and the four. And whether it's on Palinka, whether it's just those guys being too stubborn to, to slide to those spots full time, it seems like they continue to try to find bigger bodies and have like three or four true posts on the roster outside of them, whether it was trying to jam in, you know, Dwight Howard and some minutes with them the last couple of years, at, you know, Damian Jones this year, whatever they do with those lineups virtually impossible to do when you have Russ at the one from a spacing perspective. So, so much of this has been ill-fitting when you don't get a ton of specialty shooters, when you try to put bigs in a non-shooting point guard on the floor next to two great, you know, all-time individual players in, in LeBron and AD. Uh, it, it's, it's a strange fit, but apparently one that the Bus family felt worth rewarding. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, by the way, like in the middle of talking about this, I pulled up some Jordan Poole highlights from tonight. Uh, goodness. He, he went off. He is not fucking joking around right now. He had like a f- inside out dribble into like a behind the back move into like a same foot floater. Uh, he through like a ridiculous wild pass. He's like running all sorts of ball screens with James, James Wiseman. If, if there's ever a time that a coach can't tell you to change the style of play that you have in the middle of a game, this is probably it. So, you know what? Good for him, buddy. um, Jordan Poole is showing out right now. This is, uh, (laughs) and some of these highlights I think for, are like from an hour ago. Uh, I just pulled them up. Um, but, Oh my goodness, Jordan. Go. Take that long leash. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know that I need to keep harping on the Lakers thing. It's just a weird choice to me. And like, look, he just orchestrated, like, and look, I don't know that this was LeBron. Uh, this could have been a LeBron decision. This could have been, you know, a, a, two, a LeBron team decision and a like Lakers Palinka decision to bring in Russell Westbrook. I think that there's still some lack of clarity on like, you know, what percentage to 
ascribe to each of those parties for the Russell Westbrook decision. But like, unquestionably, that is one of the worst trades of the last like seven or eight years. Like there's just not another way around it, unfortunately. And to reward the guy that did that, even though he brought you a title in 2020, I don't know, a little bit tough for me. But let's uh, let's move forward here and let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be back to talk about 2023 NBA draft prospects. Okay. Let's get started here. We are talking 2023 NBA draft wing prospects. Spins, we decided to save the Thompson twins for this one. We did. We have Cam Whitmore. We have Anthony Black. We have Derek Whitehead. We have Dylan Mitchell. Uh, we have a number of really fun players that we're going to have to talk about here. But let's start with the Thompson twins. Uh, sure. Have gone on a bit of a tour here. They've played... An NBL team, they've played mega. We've gotten some really good tape from OTE thus far and its key players this season. I mean, the biggest thing that's just been the absolute critical highlight, Amen Thompson is absolutely balling out. I mean, goodness. This dude looks like the number three prospect in this class right now. Uh, he, He is... Absolutely confident as all hell. He is attacking relentlessly uh, against these pro teams. Even like he's just been so incredibly productive. He he is to me right now the number three prospect in this class, even above Cam Whitmore. And I know that both you and I really really love Cam Whitmore, as we're going to talk about here momentarily. Yeah, a, a love hate relationship with Whitmore from my end because he dunked on us like four times last year. Absolutely but, obliterated. Uh, the boys Latin Lakers last yeah. year, Cam Whitmore. Yeah, he's good. He's very good. Uh, but let's let's stick to Thompson here. So, like when we're talking about wings, obviously we mentioned it last week with the guards positional group. I think it's worth at least uh, reminding people the way that we're grouping these positionally is more about who they guard than what their offensive tendencies are. That this is a lot of the times going to be three categories: guards, wings, and posts. And we're looking more at. You know, what is your main position, your primary position on defense going to have you matching up with? So that's, to me, one of the reasons why the Thompson Twins end up in this position group and category, because they are 6'7", 6'8", long-armed, can defend up and down the lineup. I think that it behooves them to play a little bit more uh, in that kind of spot on the defensive end and be surrounded by smaller shooters, so to speak, in an ideal standpoint. Uh, huge fan of, of Amen Thompson particularly over the last month or so, he has won me over in a lot of really big ways. I, I hate the word generational, but let's just say strongly elite athlete. Uh, incredible first step, oh. the ability to, to change speeds. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's something. He is, to me at least, Amen Thompson is like – I said previously, I think he's going to enter the NBA as one of the five best athletes in the league. I think that's right. Like, yeah. he, he might not be generational, but he is like elite of the elite of the elite Ooh. in the NBA. And I don't say that lightly. Like, I am someone that tends to downplay, like, 
athleticism in some way, shape, or form when it comes to prospects. Amen Thompson is in his own class. He is he is something different for his size. He he has the body control. He has the twitch. He has the explosiveness. Like it, it's across the board. Amen Thompson is just like a he's a different level dude as an athlete. He is, and and it's. I'm glad you mentioned all those different ways because athleticism isn't just how high you jump. It's not just your vertical and your explosion in the open floor. It's your stop start going from zero to a, a full sprint and, and a drive. It's your deceleration in the lane. And he's shown over the last couple of weeks that he's great with both areas. He's got blistering speed in the open floor. He can get skinny and pressure and you know, move his feet laterally on the defensive end. He can fly and take off of one feet or two feet. He's very good at leaping and making decisions in the air because he gets what seems like a, a full extra second when he's in the air to make some of those decisions as a passer or a scorer. Uh, he's, he's got so many tools to work with, but his, his processing speed as a playmaker matched with those skills allows him to really just put pressure on defenses. You know, I, I love guys who have that straight line speed where even if a defender's in perfect position and funneling them towards the baseline or to an area where they might not get a clean look at the rim, a help defender is still going to be able to come because because they're just so threatened by the thought of Amen Thompson driving and dunking on them. And when he marries yeah. that with his high IQ passing feel and ability to, to make accurate reads on the move, he's going to be just a constant rim pressure threat. And to me, when you're talking about guys to build an offense around, we're going to talk about the jump shot. I'm sure that's something that we, we absolutely have to discuss with Amen Thompson. But he has all of the natural tools right from the jump to be an elite guy at putting pressure on the rim. And to me, that's still what, what counts most for a primary option. Yeah. And look, there are some things he has to clean up from a ball handling perspective. There are some things he has to clean up from just like, he gets so aggressive, but like he puts so much pressure that he is a foul drawing machine. He's an attack oriented, just absolute stud. I, I don't know. I, I, I am such a big fan of Amen Thompson. Uh, just an absolute stud. I want to talk about the shooting with the two of them together a little bit at the yeah. end, but let's talk about Asar Thompson. I don't want to say I'm worried. That's probably not fair. Uh, I, I don't think that that would be completely accurate, but I do think Amen has pretty clearly taken a step ahead at this point based off of the last, you know, what month and a half of tape that we've seen. Yep. Um, he just looks a little bit better. Uh, the thing that I'm struggling with a bit with a sore is what is the role exactly for him? Um, with a man, he's an incredible passer, playmaker, pressure player, twitchy athlete. Like even if he doesn't shoot it, he's going to be effective because he just makes shit happen out there in such a substantial way. Uh, a sore is a lot more polished, a lot more uh, has better footwork. I think his jumper is slightly farther along than Amen's. If I'm being completely honest, uh, I I just I, I yeah, can't quite yeah. Th- like there's some there's something missing to it. Uh, I, I think part of it for me, and I'll try to put my explanation on this here is there's a lack of marriage between 
his athletic tools and his playmaking in the way that a men plays as such a twitchy athlete and his ability to make plays on the move. There's no pass, no type of read, no coverage that he can't counter on that with a sore. He almost seems like he makes his plays before he gets a paint touch that a lot of his reads are proactive kicks that he understands where the help is going to come from. And he makes that pass. But once he gets below that middle hash in the lane, He's committed to, to driving and trying to make his finish at the basket. Isn't great at, you know, he's got to come to, like you said, play off two feet, have those reverse pivots and, and, and kind of pump fakes and, and make those polished counter moves. He's not as great with, with the, the live body stuff. A phenomenal athlete in a lot of ways, but he hasn't figured out how to be that dynamic playmaker while being a threat to, to try to get to the rim. And, and that is really hard to do when you don't have – a great jump shot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good summarization of it all. I just, yeah. And he defends. They're, they're both very good defensively, by the way. Very like, good. let's be clear about that too. They're both very good defensively. They both do a really, really good job of, I, I think a man is more of a playmaker. I think a sore is a little bit more solid, mm-hmm. uh, positionally because i think he's a little bit stronger at this point i don't know if a men would agree with that having talked to them uh <laughs> given how competitive they are uh you can go find that video from a few months ago where i talked to both of them and broke down tape with them but i think that asor probably holds his ground just a little bit more which is going to allow him to guard up the lineup a little bit easier uh i i just yeah, it's just what is the role? He needs to be like an attack-oriented player, but I don't know if he's quite creative enough off the bounce yet to truly like all the time put pressure on the defense. And I don't know that he's quite as switchy as a man, and he's not quite yet a shooter. And I think it goes as much as anything to show what the margin for error is when you are a non-shooter. Uh, if you can't shoot you basically have to be like a men Thompson lightning in a bottle, uh, make everything happen. Uh, the athleticism, the defensive upside, the potential is like a secondary playmaker passer does give a sore Thompson, like very real upside if the shooting comes together, but it also creates a lower floor. The lack of shooting really does foster some problems, I guess is what I would say. Well, and, and Sam, I haven't done the research on this because I'm just kind of thinking it right now. But off the top of your head, I mean, how many all-star caliber primary options on an NBA team over the last 15 years or so have shot less than 32% from three, predictably year after year? Like, you know that's what you're getting. Russell Westbrook stands out as one. Like, are, are there any yeah. others? Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but yeah, from from the guard spot, obviously, yeah, like yeah, I don't, and I think that's where it has to be. Like all of the intangibles, all of the elite athleticism, the drive, game after game, year after year, to do what Russell Westbrook has. Like that's how you become an all star caliber player when when you don't have the jump shot, and that's a lot to to bank on for a kid like Asor uh, or a men, but. You know, I think a men's tools are just a little bit higher, uh, higher ceiling than Asor's right now. Yeah, and, and look at the here, – here's the deal. They're both very high-level kids. They're both high-level workers. 
I absolutely think Asor is going to play in the NBA and is going to play in the NBA for a while. Um, I'm not like so overly concerned that that's an issue. Uh, it, it is probably unfair on some level that we always compare the two, but it has almost been set up for that to be the case. If only because they play together, they are, um, you know, the, the, they're these two guys that went to OTE and decided to both create this new paradigm of being a prospect. Right. So, um, who else do we compare them to on OTE but themselves, right? Because they are a level above everyone else. Um, and, and right now, I guess, based off of this entire little tour that they've done of playing high-level teams, I do think that it has gone to show that a men is just a bit of a level above right now, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Now, I have some questions about whether a men is – truly separating himself into that number three spot. Uh, there are two other guys, both wings, that I'm sure we'll talk about here, that I have in that three, four, five mix alongside of him. But both, uh, unfortunately, injured to start the year in college basketball. So it's going to yeah. be a little bit more of a long-term question that lingers. Yeah, the the wing spot has unfortunately been hit by injuries in a very disappointing way. Uh Let's start with Cam Whitmore. Cam Whitmore has a broken right thumb, fractured right thumb, I guess is the way to put it. Um, being reevaluated in early November, it seems like. That that just does not seem like a good recipe uh, to start the season very, very well, at the very least. Let, let's go with that. Um, I love Cam Whitmore. I couldn't be more disappointed that he's going to miss the start of the year. I think he's... Yeah. Uh, one of the players I was most looking forward to watching this year. Spins, you got to play against Cam Whitmore this past year with the Boys Latin Lakers. Shout out, Boys Latin. As he Go tries Lakers. to show the show the logo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me all about Cam Whitmore, Spins. All right. Whitmore is a freak athlete. Uh, I think he's listed at about 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, right now but an incredible combination of power and vertical leaping ability. He uses it incredibly well on both ends. Great in transition, absolutely elite there, and has a good enough handle to be able to get past guys in the open floor, play at full speed. He is a very smart, instinctual defender who knows how and when to use his athleticism. I think he probably guards two through four at an effective rate on an NBA type of floor. I don't know if I would consider him switchable on the ones, but very strong and physically built for his age in ways that just have allowed him to physically overpower pretty much anybody that he's faced up to this point, whether it was in high school, in AAU, or even in international competition this summer for, for Team USA on the U18s. Um, he has gained a little bit of a jump shot. It was the knock on him a little bit earlier in his career. And it's something that he definitely worked on, both from a catch-and-shoot standpoint and off the dribble. He's got some small areas to continue to clean up. Doesn't live in the mid-range right now. Pretty much everything for him is at the rim or from three. He's got one go-to move in, in late clock situations, which is this step back to his left that he creates enough separation on and, and the release is quick enough that he's able to get it off. But if he's driving to his right in a late clock situation, you know he's trying to get to the rim. I think Villanova is going to be a fantastic fit for him, allowing him to be somewhat switchable on defense. 
continue to operate as a guy that needs to work on his footwork and getting into that mid-range area. You know, Villanova runs a ton of backdoor cuts. They play really patient, fundamental style of basketball where they play off of two feet, stride stops, jump stops, reverse pivot, try to find cutters and movers around him. I think that'll help him improve as a playmaker. I hope that they use him a little bit as a mismatch post-up option. It's something he was reluctant to do in high school, but I thought he could have gotten really easy points out of because he's so physically strong mm. compared to the competition that he plays against. But the the sky is the limit for him if he figures out how to add a little bit more of a deceleration to his game in the mid-range area and continue to consistently hit shots off the uh, off the bounce. Because if he does those things he can be that physically overpowering offensive type of engine uh, that's just is really great to fit with his raw athletic and defensive tools. I don't know that I need to say anything else other than that. I, I, the <laughs> thing that stands out to me when I watch Cam is the body control and the just like grace for being as like thick and strong as he is uh you watch him go up around the basket like he has that ability to really kind of hang in the air and change the angle when he's attacking despite being as strong as he is and like that ability to absorb contact but still kind of hang in the air and like adjust the angle go up take the bump still score go up take the bump even like have the ball here and then like bring it under for a little layup that way uh underneath the arm very, very impressive player. A uh, very, very impressive player. I really hope that he shoots it well this year. The thumb injury obviously yeah. will throw some things off with that. I think it could make him kind of a tough eval on some right. level. The other thing that could make him a tough eval is Kyle Neptune is the coach of Villanova now. I don't mean this, you know, disparagingly toward Kyle, but he's not Jay Wright. Um, Jay Wright is a Hall of Famer. We'll see what happens with Kyle Neptune's career. Uh, we'll see if he runs literally the same thing that Jay has been running for years upon years, 15 years that he was at Villanova or whatever. Uh, Kyle was a longtime assistant under Jay Wright before taking this job. What does the Villanova situation look like? Is it the same? Is it different? And we can say the same coming up from the next guy. But like, I will just be fascinated to see. There are more questions about Cam Whitmore than what I expected there would be. Uh, coming into this year as someone who just fucking absolutely adores Cam Whitmore as a prospect and thinks he is like an absolute stud. Yep. And the thumb adds the whole different wrinkle into that equation there. I mean, we've seen a lot of guys who were prolific at the, the high school levels before who have one wrist or thumb, some sort of a hand injury that kind of puts, just kills their, their shooting ability in college. Like I'm thinking Romeo Langford prolific scorer yeah. in high school gets to Indiana deals with a couple of injuries on his hand, his wrist area doesn't look the same when he's there still ends up a first round draft pick, never ends up shooting it again in the NBA for Whitmore. Like he, he needs a jump shot. Uh, he just, it's going to be an important part of his offensive arsenal at the next level. And part of the reason that he remains a top five prospect on my board right now is because he's shown such growth over the last year or so that if he can keep going on that trajectory, he's going to be an average to above average shooter at the next level. But he needs to be that because he doesn't have quite the the creative handle, the mid-range scoring ability, the other ways to impact it, other than just his sheer strength and athleticism. Yep. Uh, let's go to Derek Whitehead. 
uh, out of Duke. Another situation where new coach coming in, replacing a legend, John Shire replacing Coach K. Uh, my thoughts on Coach K and John Shire have been made abundantly clear on this podcast previously. I'm really excited to see what Duke runs this year. Uh, I'm intrigued by this. Whitehead obviously has a foot injury right now. Foot injuries from time to time can bring up issues in regard to shooting, in regard to balance, in regard to a lot of different things. Um, you just have to hope that he gets healthy. I'm sure he's getting fucking phenomenal medical care at Duke, but like you just never know how much these things are going to linger at the end of the day and the ways that they're going to linger into a person's game. I really hope that uh, Dariq gets healthy here coming up and is going to be as healthy as he humanly can be entering the season. Cause he is someone, whereas like, unlike Cam Whitmore, I have a few more questions on Dariq Whitehead um, than some do, I guess I would say, what, what is your take on Dariq before I kind of jump into my questions? Yeah, I'm actually a really big fan of Whitehead. Really, really big fan. Uh, I, I like scoring guys, guys who have that three-level potential and upside, uh, be more of a, a guy who captains an offense, so to speak, with the ball in his hands. I think he's an underrated passer in a lot of different ways, particularly on the move. Would like to see more pick-and-roll reps for him this year, but that might be hard to get at Duke because they have a couple guys who are just really, really good and proficient in that area. Uh, I, I like that he competes on defense. I think he's got strength to him. I, I'd like to see a little bit more against the highest of high-level players uh, with his consistency on ball. But I think he has the tools to be a, a positive defender on that end. And I do buy both the self-creation and the catch-and-shoot being something mm. he can really hang his hat on. Uh, and that's an area for me that just stands out for guys. I mentioned it on the last podcast with cards. Like I'm a sucker for guys that can stretch defenses far beyond the three-point line. His confidence and his ability to kind of hit some shots on the move, to be more of a catch-and-shoot guy, the on-ball, off-ball hybrid, that's what intrigues me a lot about Whitehead. Yeah, so I think I have a few more questions than you do on him being like a consistent catch-and-shoot guy right now. Unlimited confidence, totally agree with that. Like, and that's really going to, that's a benefit to him. Like unlimited Mm -hmm. confidence, always going to have that ability uh, to forget about the next one. If he misses it or forget about the past one for the next one, if he misses it, I think he's a good shooter, not a great one. And when I watched him, you know, Montverde, I thought very straight line oriented as a driver and more aggressive than like Uber athlete, right? Like, I think he is a good athlete. I think he's a legit like NBA level wing athlete. That's not going to have any problems there. I don't know that he is like crazy, wildly explosive either though. When I watched him, he has all these crazy phenomenal highlights because he's so aggressive. He's just zooming. Like if he gets a lane, It's gone. He is attacking. He is going to try and finish on your fucking head every single time. And I mean that in the best possible way. But like, I don't know what else is there in terms of like craft as a driver yet. I would love to be able to see him. Like he didn't need to bring it out. Maybe at Montverde as part of the thing. Like Montverde's a loaded team. He had more straight lines. Like there are some, Mm -hmm. you know, real, real reasons why he might not have had to do those things. But 
I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I would yeah. like to see a little bit more craft, I guess, from uh, Derek Whitehead. I think that's fair. I mean, what I found in diving into the type, the tape at Montverde was that a lot of times when he wouldn't have a straight line drive, when he would start to drive and his defender would find a way to cut him off, he was pretty good at kind of arm barring, creating separation and going to a step back. But I don't know if that's mm. the most sustainable move that you can hit or should be taking time and time again. Like you want to see a little bit of the step back, keep your dribble alive, shoulder fake, and then go again. You want to see a spin move to an up and under. You want to see a pro hop in the lane where he kicks to the, the weak side because he's still drawing two because of his threat as a, a straight line driver. So uh, there are definite areas that he can continue to improve at at that end. But shooting, I, I do buy. Uh, confidence, super, super high with a guy like him. And again, I, I agree with the sentiment, not an elite athlete, but good enough to be a, a top two or three option on a good NBA team. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on next. We have here on our list, which I've lost in my tabs. Uh, you want to go Brandon Miller or Anthony Black next? Mm, let's uh, let's paint it black here and, and go to, to the Hogs. So Anthony Black, we talked about Nick Smith last year, and we kind of talked about the interplay that might happen between Anthony Black and Nick Smith. Nick Smith, I think, is going to be more of your – uh, combo guard, last second shot creator that Arkansas really needs. Anthony Black, I love Anthony Black at the point guard position. Yeah. Like he can really handle the ball. He's a great transition point guard, makes really good decisions. I think he makes really good half court decisions, finding those kickout reads, getting everyone involved. He's a great defender as well, really gets into guys, you know, has great positional versatility on the defensive end really worry about the ability to score uh really worry about the shooting i think he has such high upside if the shooting ever comes along yeah it seems like it's a ways away from looking at the tape uh it, from texas yeah yeah it, look i'm glad you mentioned score and not just shoot right a lot of people want to focus yeah. on on your ability to treats is, you know, he doesn't have a very reliable pull-up. There are some games that I watch where it goes in and he's confident with it. There are others when he's clearly not. He misses a lot of bunnies. He doesn't seem to have elite touch rim or he'll get there and he'll just, because he's a six, seven point guard, have the ability to finish over guys or through them. And he just doesn't convert once he gets there. I think he's a little bit turnover prone and some of that is role and usage. Some of that is also just he can be a little bit overambitious with some of the passes that he tries to make. A fine athlete, but not a great one in terms of his explosion. Um, I love big guards with high feel, and I want to bet on a guy like him because I think that his his confidence is something that's going to be able to carry him a, a pretty far way. But man, I just I want to see that confidence translate into a little bit more of a, a scoring punch. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, right now, can score in transition. I don't know that I trust him to score in any other way outside of maybe off of cuts. Right, like, and he's a good offensive rebounder. I will give him that. I think he does yeah. try to make an impact on that side of the floor. He's active on tip ins and putbacks. Like that's that's something he clearly cares about and wants to use his size advantage for, but. He's just if he's going to get to the rim and be a bigger point guard to physically match guys, he has to convert at the rim first. Otherwise, you're a zero level scorer, and that's to me it's, it's kind of crawl before you walk in that regard. 
Yeah, like I think it's almost like a situation where he is, you know, probably a 10 point per game guy, something like that. He'll be like 10, 5, and 6 or something like that. And, you know, teams will have to make a designation on that on some level and we'll have to see where it goes. I, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer yet on, but can, can he be 10, five and six on 44% shooting or is it going to be on 39% shooting because he misses some bunnies and doesn't shoot it well from three? Is he going to have five assists a game and two and a half turnovers or is he going to have three and a half turnovers? Those are, the I, I think it'll be more, I think it's going to be more in like the two turnover per game area. I do think he makes good decisions. It's more just what's, what's the scoring power. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it yeah. comes down to how does he put the ball in the bucket? How is he a threat that coaches have to account for going into the game? You know, playing next to Nick Smith, I think is really going to help him. Honestly, uh, yeah. he will get open catch and shoot shots and he will get like times where guys will close out on him. Cause he'll be very open from three as teams, you know, have to, condense the lane on Nick Smith drives, right? Playing next to Nick Smith in with Anthony Black, that's a perfect combination for those two to be very, very impactful and successful, I think, this year for Arkansas. From an individual perspective, we'll see with Anthony Black. I, I think that has very real lottery upside if the yes. scoring takes just a very small step toward consistency, I think. But so let's go word. now right to Brandon Miller. Mouth. Let's go now to Brandon Miller, where, man, was I wrong about Brandon Miller, I think. Uh, I'll be real with it. I, and I, I kind of, I like, have said this previously. I did not love his tape that I saw. Like, I thought that he didn't really shoot it well from distance. I thought he was kind of like a mid-range, like mid-post gunner. And I wasn't really sure how that was, like, translatable as he'd go up levels toward the NBA and toward college. Didn't love his defensive tape even. Fuck was I wrong. Like, <laughs> that dude's awesome. Like, watching their tape, like, from the Euro Tour, that dude's awesome. That dude's so good. And then I kind of talked to some scouts. Like, this is the problem with having to miss all of those, like, yeah, exhibition circuit stuff. Because I got COVID before Hoop Summit and, you know, ended up not being able to complete some of the exhibition tour stuff. Um, I heard he was really good at McDonald's. Like, I heard he was, like, really, really good there. The defense was good. The stroke looked good from three. It seems like maybe, uh, like, if I had seen him there, I might have felt a little bit differently, but god damn. I, I, yeah, he looks awesome for Alabama. I yeah. think, you know, top 20 slash lottery guy coming into the year, mm-hmm. Brandon Miller, uh, based off of all the indications we've seen so far. He is a walking tough, too, and th- yeah. that's – it kind of scares. That's me. what I didn't it's, love. That's what yeah. I didn't love. Yeah. Like it, it, it's it's scary because it's high risk, high reward in that regard. If you are a good enough option at the NBA to play through and consistently nail mid range jumper after mid range jumper, tough step back, you know, mid post isolations, time and time again, then you're probably an all star if you're going to command that role on an NBA floor. You just you have to be. And if you're not, it really raises questions about what is your primary role function? How do you help a team other than being maybe a, a gunner off the bench or on a second unit? You know, I did have some, some questions about both his shot and his rim pressure, his ability to sustain separation from defenders and really get to the basket and convert. 
a lot of people that I talk to aren't as worried about that. I don't know if maybe that was just me overreacting to a couple clips that I saw in some games or if, if it was a general concern that he's been able to, to work on. Um, but defensively, I want to see if he can guard threes and fours or if he's more of just kind of like a, a defender at one position or one type of, of wing. But really, really high ceiling for a guy like Brandon Miller. Super fun. And I think what we've seen enough of with his confidence and scoring ability is that he's mostly a, a one-and-done first-round pick. I think that's very, very likely. Uh, Okay. Let's get into some of these other guys. We have a big, long list here of returning (laughs) players. And, well, let's – do you want to do the G League Ignite and uh, Mega guys next? Maybe maybe let's knock them out first. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So we got to see Leonard Miller and CD Sissoko with the G League Ignite. We talked about them a little bit at the last end of the last episode. I don't know that we need to dive deep into them. I talked about Leonard Miller quite a bit over the last couple episodes. Go back, listen to the Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson episodes that we did last week. Uh, if you want more of an in-depth like kind of breakdown of their games, do you see either of these guys as first-round picks right now? Sissoko, maybe. It will depend on how he plays next yeah. to Scoot Henderson this year. Uh, you know, being a questionable shooter next to a ball-dominant guard, I think that that's going to answer a lot of questions about what his role is moving forward in the NBA in either a positive or a negative way. But I think we'll know by the end of this draft cycle. Uh, Leonard Miller, I, I think, probably is, needs another year. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those sentiments. I think Sissoko is almost like a check back kind of guy. Like, let's see what he looks like in February. Leonard Miller is like this too, by the way, like seeing how yeah. Leonard Miller plays off the ball after he gets some experience playing off the ball, I think is going to be really intriguing. Um, but yeah, they're both kind of check back in X number of months kind of guys mm-hmm. and see what they look like, have the upside of potential first round picks, but we'll see. I think, I, I think that it's uh, the skill level and like the craft and the polish on both of those guys um, is probably a bit of a level below what that anticipated level is right now. Maybe, maybe in March we are singing a different tune. Um, the upside is real and they're in a good developmental situation. I am very interested to see what happens with both of those guys. I think you and I are both a little bit higher on Nikola Jurisic than both of them though. My guy. Yes. I love Jurisic. Explain why you love Nikola Jurisic because yeah, you and I, again, we did a podcast previously where we talked quite a bit about Nikola Jurisic talked about the Thompson twins when they played mega in Serbia Give me your thoughts on Nikola Jurisic. I don't know that we want to go like heavily in depth here. Yeah. Six foot eight, six, seven with really high feel kind of playmaking wing that has really, really smooth stroke. I think the numbers don't do justice for how good of a three point threat he is a little bit off the bounce, a little bit in catch and shoot, maybe some movement upside eventually, but a very smart player. Uh, he does have some limitations on the defensive end, but at the end of the day, size, IQ, and shooting have been a proven recipe to work in the NBA, at least as a role player. And I think that that's an area that he checks every single one of those boxes. Agree. Yeah, I think the big thing is the shooting. If the shooting is what you and I think it is, yeah. uh, has some real like, like almost like a cross between the Bogdanoviches, right? Like probably not quite as yeah. good of a ball handler as Bogdan, probably not quite as good of a shooter 
as Boyan, but like somewhere in between there in terms of size, somewhere in between there in terms of like ball handling ability and playmaking. Um, I do quite like Jurisic. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that given the positional size, there is some real upside there. Um, let's go next to. Uh, let, let's go to some of the freshmen now that are more, more questionable, let's say. Yeah. Uh, guys that certainly have the upside to even go as high as like the late lottery, I think, but maybe uh, could also end up being like multi-year guys if things like really broke uh, in a crazy way. Uh, let's start with Dylan Mitchell. I think he's probably the highest profile guy here. Uh, top five recruit in the class. Yeah fucking insane athlete i mean goodness what an athlete dylan mitchell is like pro maybe the second best athlete in the class behind a men thompson yeah maybe yeah like it's close a sore thompson certainly up there uh you know scoot henderson's obviously up there another guy that i very strongly consider for this but man is dylan mitchell just an absolute joke of an athlete i just kind of want to see what else he can do at this point and I, I think we've talked about this before. I don't know if Texas is the right type of fit to be able to develop a lot of the offensive tools that we need. Chris Beard, a little bit more of a defensive-minded coach, should be able to unleash his athleticism in a lot of different ways, allow him to be aggressive, play in the open floor. But we all know playoff basketball, which is why you draft guys in the first round to be playoff contributors, is about half-court execution. And he's going to need to show a lot about where and how he fits on the offensive end of the floor. I got questions about his feel. I got questions about his handling. I got questions about his shooting in particular. There's just a lot that needs to be answered on that end before I can commit to him being a one and done. And it's not even like, it's not even like they're definite negatives on those things. I think we just have questions. Like we just haven't seen a lot of it really. We just know he is a fucking banana land athlete, basically. Yeah. Someone's going to ask, someone's going to ask me what's Dylan Mitchell's ideal role in the NBA. What, what does he do in the half court in the offensive end? And I don't know how to answer that yet. And until I can answer that, I'm not ready to call him a one and done. Yeah. Uh, I think he probably is a one and done for what it's worth. Like, I think the athleticism is just so overwhelming that someone will take him and see what happens. Like we saw this with Darius Baisley, right? Like, I, I think someone will take the athleticism size combination and just roll the dice and then develop him on their own. But, you know, we'll see where, what level that ends up being. Does he end up being like the number eight overall pick or does he end up being like the 30th overall pick? I don't know. Uh, I think that that is what remains to be seen. Uh, okay. Let's go next to, let's go to Chris Livingston. Cause I've actually heard like pretty, interesting things about Livingston coming out of Kentucky. Like I think he is going to play a lot of minutes. I think he's going to be tough. I think he's going to be pretty interesting as a player overall. Like I think there's a pretty real chance that uh, his physicality, his, uh, I guess like level of polish to an extent, like he is capable of just like using his bulk and his strength at a really high level and knowing how to leverage that. I've also heard that like the shooting looks pretty good as well. Yeah. You know, being six foot six, being strong, being a good shooter, that's typically a pretty good combination toward being a first round pick. 
Yeah, that's um, you're taking the words out of my mouth there, Sam. Like that's pretty much what he is in a nutshell at the idealized version. We want to see how it continues to look on a, a college basketball floor. Can he shoot it consistently enough over a long period of time? Like w- one thing that I found with Kentucky guys is that either they take a decent amount of attempts from three or they rarely are able to get yeah. them off. That Calipari tightly puts the reins on guys. And if he's able to shoot it or allowed to shoot it on a high enough volume, that may be enough to convince me that there's shooting upside worth investing in. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I don't know that I have a ton else to say. I mean, the the, the question with him is just like the athleticism. He's a bit heavy footed uh, and just like a bit bulky. Like the thing with him is he was like a top five recruit in the class because he developed very early in comparison to other people uh, that development, you know, in terms of him being stronger and bigger, he's still probably stronger and bigger and a better shooter than a lot of guys in college, to be honest. Uh, yeah. I would guess that he probably is a good shot to go in the first round, like somewhere late mm-hmm. in the first round, just because of the yeah. shooting, like the shooting is pretty real. I think. Well, and I think now is an appropriate time to mention, like we're going through a lot of potential one and dones. We're going to go, and talk about some upperclassmen and returning guys. Wings and size are kind of the common thread from NBA teams right now of what it takes to be successful. I don't know any general manager or scout who would say, oh, we have too many guys that are six seven and guard multiple positions. Yeah. So yeah. It, when we're talking about mid to late first round, when we get past the, I don't know, 12 to 17 guys, let's say, that are really clear lottery potential type talents that deserve to be in the draft class. I think we're going to see this become more of a wing heavy draft, not just because there's a decent amount of depth and talent here, but because it's what's proven to win at the NBA level. The teams are more likely to take a swing on a Dylan Mitchell, a Chris Livingston in the late teens and twenties than they are to really want to go after maybe a more polished six foot two guy at that point. And this is why, I love the next guy I'm going to talk about. Terrence Arsenault. I've been high on him for God knows how long at this point. He's like the patron saint of this podcast this year, I think. Terrence Arsenault for now. He does everything well. Like, that's the thing. Like, he's 6'7". He has super long arms. He's a good defender. He's a pretty good decision-maker passer. He's a good driver. Like, he's an okay shooter. Like, it's just that all of these things are True, they're just not standout skills necessarily, but he's a multi-versatile, talented player that I think by December is going to have worked his way into Houston's starting lineup and is going to be very, very valuable to where they probably can't keep him on the bench anymore. Kelvin Sampson, a a coach I greatly respect for how he gets the most out of his team and his guys and, and, and does a lot of different things. Uh, he rarely gushes about freshmen, I feel. And he seems yeah. to be really high on Arsenal. So I think that's a really good call on your end, Sam. I got him penciled in as a late first, early second guy right now and and, and do think that just the lack of holes in his game is what's going to get him to the next level. Yeah, I absolutely love him. Uh, let's go Julian Phillips next. Uh, I've heard good things out of Tennessee uh, as a guy that has just a lot of tools. Great athlete, six yeah. foot eight, let's call him. Uh, pretty good length, knockdown shots at a reasonable clip from time to time. He's a bit more of a streaky shooter, I would say. 
uh, from what I've seen of him. But when he gets going, boy, it goes in. Uh, another coach in Rick Barnes who doesn't typically give a long leash to freshmen in a, in a lot of great ways. So that could go to show, you know, if midseason he is one of the, the main cogs in that wheel there. I think that, that that's going to speak volumes about whether he should be a first-round guy. Uh, defensively, I just want to see him sit in the stance a little bit more. That's one thing. He's long, he's lean, but I think he, he's prone to standing up on that end of the floor. Just one of those small areas that I'm always watching, but definitely on the, that first-round radar. Yeah, like a lot of these guys, Arsenault, Julian Phillips, even to an extent, Chris Livingston, uh, you know, not so much Dylan Mitchell, but like now we're going to talk about Jordan Walsh. We're going to talk about Grady Dick. Like these are kind of the swing guys in this class in a lot of ways. Like if these guys establish themselves as legit first round picks, this is a very deep draft and this is a really fun draft and this is very good. If these guys are not first round picks, things start to get a little bit hairy, I think. And not in a hurry, but like pretty quickly. Uh, Grady Dick is like a high level shooter for sure. I don't know if he does anything else enough to be a first round pick yet uh, in 2023. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's also what, what I've noticed from studying trends in the draft over the last several years, shooting specialists, guys who you know are going to be catching shooting, do you know running off screens and, and that's what Grady Dick's role projects to be you, teams want to have multiple years of data on whether they can do that role consistently against high level defense and, and against great competition so very few one and done shooters end up coming out and sticking in that range I think simply because you just can gain a little bit more feel for your role and consistency with your numbers over time to prove that you're that first round guy yeah agree uh Jordan Walsh is kind of the opposite of Grady <laughs> yeah. Dick in a lot of ways. Great athlete, unbelievable motor, like just make shit happen out there. I have no idea where the offensive skill is yet. It's it's one of those things too. We've talked about Arkansas a decent amount on the podcast here, Sam. Nick Smith, and Anthony. Throughout the year, man. Yeah. Be ready. Yeah. Nick Smith, Anthony Black, high field ball handlers and guys that are should be the, the number one and two option in half court stuff. Not a ton of floor spacing around them. How does Walsh fit into to that equation? I think that of those three guys, like somebody's going to have to sacrifice a little bit and, and probably not show their full strength and or lose some minutes. I think Walsh is third in the pecking order, so he would be my bet there. Yeah, like it could be really interesting. Like he's six seven, he's pretty big. Maybe he just comes in and is a fucking wrecking ball. Yeah, right. Maybe that's it. Like maybe he's just like out there you know, flying around, making stuff happen. And I think like he could do, I think he can perform that role. I think he can be valuable in that. Like there are a lot of different ways that I think he could end up being a one and done, but a lot of them end up that he has to showcase the offensive skill set and polish. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we've seen that quite enough from him yet. Maybe soon. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Does that, does that get through all of the freshmen? I think it does. Let's get to the returnees now. The top one on my list is Chris Murray, six foot seven, six foot eight, real shooter from distance, hit like 39.8% from three, if I remember correctly, last year. Uh, bit more effective of a defender, I would say. 
uh, than Keegan was last year. I thought more of a true wing defender, whereas Keegan yeah. was more defending bigs and I thought didn't quite always have the footwork. Yeah. Chris, though, I think his footwork's a little bit better. He transitions more of a three and D kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I quite like it. I think he has a real shot. Yep. The, the quintessential three and D type of player. I, I see the same offensive footwork that he tries to do as Keegan with kind of spinning and being patient and, and, more methodically backing guys down when he's uh, driving to the basket. But I don't see the type of offensive explosion, number one option, creative upside coming for him this year that typically Iowa guys have been able to, to leap to in the past when they uh, ascend into being more of a veteran. So I like Chris, but I don't think that there's a lot of explosion potential for him. Yeah. I don't know if there's not a lot of like. What would an explosion be for you? I guess. I mean, jumping up into the the lottery or, or the top ten picks here, where it just I don't think his game translates into this yeah. real boom of a prospect. Like he's a pretty safe late twenties, early thirties type of guy to add around a core that you already have. Yeah, I think that's you know that's probably right. Like if he ended up going like eighteen to thirty, that wouldn't surprise me. If he ended up yeah. going forty, it wouldn't surprise me. I guess, but I do think he ends up getting drafted this year for yeah. sure. And I think he ends up being uh, a guy worth investing in uh, because of the three and D skills that he presents. Uh, I don't know where I really like Colby Jones. Like that would probably be the next guy I want to talk about. What about you? I'm fine with Colby Jones. I, I like, uh, I like Harrison Ingram at Stanford a little bit too. I have real questions about the shooting, but I like size yeah. and feel. And I think, I think he's an underrated defender in a lot of ways, probably a smart decision to go back to Stanford this year. Uh, but, you know, just a, a unique player who in the right system can probably pop at, at the NBA level is just being a tough-nosed defender and a mismatch bizarro creator. So Harrison Ingram, definitely like more of a 6'8", like uh, almost like high post passer playmaker maybe i don't know if he has enough explosiveness enough like athletic bounce to like really be able to like create out of pick and rolls consistently in the nba and and he doesn't quite have the shooting to be a three-level scorer either at this point so that that's a little bit of what my worry is there but the feel i absolutely adore the feel six foot eight seven foot wingspan really high level passer playmaker uh in terms of the way he processes the game with Colby, the reason I like Colby just a little bit more is more translatable athlete at six foot six, uh, really good physical frame. I think he's not going to have a real, a real problem defending. I think that Sean Miller is going to be great for him on the defensive end. I think he's absolutely going to really get the most out of him there. Again, though, with Harrison, it's the shooting. You know, I think Colby, another guy that played some point at times, especially early in his career at Xavier, uh, high level passer playmaker, really sees the court well, processes it well. Both of these kids, by the way, from what I've been told, like about them off the court, really, really smart kids as well. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of, uh, they're kind of similar in that way, but I think I like Colby a little bit more because I think I trust him a little bit more on the defensive end. And I think I trust the shot and scoring ability just a little bit more with Colby. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like Harrison a lot as a defender. Uh, I see him as like a thicker Sean Livingston in terms of how he would be used at the next level. Like if somebody can let him be that second unit, like, Use your physicality when you can. Just back guys down into the post if you're, if you're forcing switches off pistol actions or handoffs in, in early offense. 
just let him play to his strengths a little bit more. I think he's going to have a good pro career, but definitely not as translatable to a smaller role player type guy than Colby Jones is. Okay. Uh, let's go to Arthur Kaluma next. Yeah. Really interesting player. Six yeah. foot seven, kind of thick through like his hips and torso. Uh, very strong. He plays a very strong brand of basketball, almost like a pure four, uh, but also a real athlete in the way that he can explode from that like thicker half, but also has like some slightly like slower, like twitch tendencies. Really interesting player. It comes down to the shot for me. Like if he's a 38% three point shooter, he's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and I think there's positive growth that we've seen even from the, the back end of last season and then how he played in international competition this spring that the jump shot is coming around a little bit. There's some small mechanical things. I think he definitely has to work on in that end of the floor, see him more as a pick and pop and a catch and shoot guy than anything else. Uh, but I'm intrigued by the combination of size, strength and tools that he brings to the table. Yep. Uh, I think I probably will have him as like a late first, early second kind of guy to start the year. Uh, if only because of the like athleticism, the strength, the tools, the length, it's all pretty interesting. Um, and I think that's a really great situation for him at Creighton. Uh, Julian Strother is another guy that like, I just think is like pretty safely a top 45 pick this year. Uh, the shooting is just real yep. at Gonzaga and it's gonna, it's a great situation for him. It'll translate. Like there's no, it feels like it's hard to find a downside with Julian Strother really in that Gonzaga scheme. It's just that he needs to defend a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I think that's a lot of Gonzaga guys. We talk about, about their athleticism and individual defense. It seems to be, a potential theme with some of the prospects that they have on this year's team. But Strother is a, a catch and shoot three and D type of guy who guards the three in the floor. I get it. Let's go to Matthew Cleveland, who I think is a guy that you're a little bit higher on than I am, right? I was really high on him coming in as a freshman. I fall in love with That's Florida fair, state man. guys with, with, with length. Um, it's just uh, something Leonard Hamilton has done well for a long period of time. And I'm starting to buy into the recipe that he has cooking down there in Tallahassee. Cleveland's jump shot from a catch and shoot or a three point standpoint just never came around last year. Really confident and has decent form on his mid range pull up, but that's not his role. He's more of a Swiss Army knife cutter right now than anything else. If he can be competent as a catch and shoot guy, I see the ceiling because he's really, really good on the defensive end in terms of pressuring guys, using his athleticism, and being a switchable, versatile defender. So the questions for him are all on offense. I, I really buy the defense for him. Yeah, and I like the mindset. He has a very scoring-focused mindset. Like, he's ready to go. You know what I mean? Like, he wants to attack, attack, drive, find little lanes as a, you know, uh, you know, layup. Uh, like maker more so than a dunk guy around yeah. the basket straight yeah, line driver you know does have some craft though off the bounce where he can like get to a mid-range pull up and get to it um yeah no i, I like him i just want to see more of the shooting like if he doesn't shoot it's going to be really really hard for him um yeah guy that i do what? trust as a shooter is jordan hawkins who is six foot five pretty long not like wildly long but pretty long Runs off of actions and can really get his feet set and shoot. Uh, athleticism, defensive potential, 
shooting off of movement is a very, very good combination of skills that give you a real chance to be a potential first round pick. If things broke right for him is like a 15 point per game scorer this year. This is the coach spins Wolf of wall street, penny stock tip of the year. Jordan Hawkins as a wing is a guy that we would love to to invest in there Uh, for every reason that you just said, I think he's about to explode, but defense is the calling card for me. I think his athleticism, his length, his ability to pressure on the perimeter and move his feet in space while competing to cut off guys and force, you know, step back jumper after step back jumper. I love that combination of things. He's six five, can play maybe a little bit more of that combo guard wing, like a two three, and maybe even show some you know, ability to guard the one if you have a jumbo initiator in your offense that's six eight or mm. above. Uh, and I like that type of versatility from him because he can bring it one through three on the defensive end of the floor. I buy the jump shot just like you do, 33%, but really streaky as a freshman. If that continues to climb and he can be dependent upon as a catch-and-shoot guy or somebody that even off of handoffs is just a, a really key threat, I'm buying him as a, a really good bargain in the late first, early second round. Kevin McCuller, Will Richard, Baylor Shireman, Terrence Shannon, Jalen Bridges. Anyone kind of stand out there as an upperclassman that, you know, makes, you know, worth bringing up, I guess, is something I would say. You know, we talked about shooting specialists before as guys where you want to see multiple years of data on Baylor Shireman. I thought it was an interesting decision he made to withdraw from the draft last year and end up transferring to Creighton. But Again, another year of proving what he can do as a specialty shooter, a movement specialist, because McDermott uses shooters so damn efficiently there. I think that that can really find a way for him to to punch a ticket into being a a late second-round guy. Much in the same way that I brought up Reese Beekman last week on the guard side as like a very, very high-level defender that I think Mm -hmm. is just a jump shot away. Kevin McCuller, extremely high-level defender that is just a jump shot away. Basically, uh, if yep. the jump shot happens, you know, probably a top 40, top 45 pick. If it doesn't, you know, maybe he's an undrafted kind of two way guy. We'll see. Um, I'm going to give you the floor. We'll go back and forth on this. Okay. Two guys each that are kind of deeper sleepers that uh, that you like. I'll, I'll let you go first. Okay. Are we going Two and two or one, 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 one here? What do you want to do? One, 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 one. Okay. Well, I'll go with my first one then, which is Tucker DeVries. Tucker DeVries. Drake. Love him. Let's go. Love him. Um, Thought he was awesome as a freshman last year. High feel. Good size at 6'7", 6'8". Efficient finisher near the basket. Hit shots from three in every type of way possible. But it's the processing speed and the feel and just his – his overall alertness on both ends of the floor that has me incredibly intrigued for, I hate the player comparison game, but almost like a Jake LaRavia type of role moving forward where like he's predominantly out there to stretch the floor, but if he's attacking closeouts, making plays, you know that you're in safe, safe hands with him. I dig it. I don't know that he like has the weird reactive like hand-eye coordination and like dexterity that Jake had. But yeah, yeah, I like that as a point of comparison in some ways. Uh, My first pick is going to be 
let's go with let's go with Max Lewis uh, out of Pepperdine. Yeah. Six seven, very high level athlete, knocked down shots last year in the WCC. When I talked to WCC coaches, they were like, This is a guy to watch at the very least for the future. Um, they thought you know, has a lot of the tools that NBA teams are looking for. Six seven, very real athlete, very real dunker, has a real shot, I think. I dig it. Yeah, I I dig it. I think there's been a lot of positive buzz about him. Like Pepperdine should be a lot better this year. Uh, he, he can really get up. Like his athleticism when he very high level is, leaper is yeah yeah explosive explosive near the rim. Yeah. Uh, no, the the athleticism is real. Sam, did you cut out a little bit? No, no, I I can't hear you here. I don't know if you muted yourself or your mic unplugged. I hit the I, I hit the mute. I, I lost you for a few seconds, and I want to make sure it wasn't just me. No, wasn't just you. Uh, hit the mute button right on the ma- on the microphone here. No, uh, Max Lewis, just a very very interesting athlete because kind of similar situation where we talk about Jordan Hawkins, where like Jordan Hawkins, you know, very very good athlete, high level shooter. Lewis isn't quite the movement shooter that Jordan Hawkins is. I trust Hawkins way more as a shooter overall in terms of like NBA sets that make sense. But Lewis is more athletic. He's a little bit longer, can knock down the spot three at a reasonable clip. Yeah, I like Max Lewis. I'm pretty interested to see what that Pepperdine team looks like this year. I think they have as much talent as what you can get at Pepperdine. I will say that. (laughs) Fair enough. So I got to come up with one more deep sleep. You got one more. One more. Okay. Um, I'm going to go probably a little bit out of left field here uh, for what you might know of me, but uh, I'm going to go with Jalen Bridges at Baylor. I I think that I like Jalen. This is a good one. Yeah. I I think this is the right team and role for him to just space the floor around a ton of high level guards who all shoot it pretty well who all are going to be able to get into the lane and make plays for others, be more of a wing defensive stopper and show what he can do. I mean, the pathway forward is stereotypical three and D type of role, but he's a good athlete, particularly in space. And I think that he's a really positive rebounder that playing with a smaller backcourt, like he will at Baylor is going to allow him to be dependent upon in that regard on the glass. I'm expecting a really big season from him. Uh, I'm a big, big Jalen Bridges fan. I was when he was in high school and watched him a lot in AAU. Just always thought there was something that popped about him. And I think Baylor's going to do wonders for him in terms of a creative offense. Okay. I'm going to go with something of a forgotten man last year because he ended up getting hurt and missing a lot of the year. I'm going to go Marcus Bagley. Yeah, I I liked Marcus Bagley when he was a freshman. I thought he was really talented. I thought that the six foot eight size and length gave him some real upside. He's a not not quite like as live of an athlete as Marvin is, but he is a better shooter, obviously, and he does have real twitch. He defends at a better clip, I think, than Marvin does. Obviously, smaller. They play different roles. Marcus is more of like a three and D hybrid three four, whereas Marvin is a big, but. We all liked Marcus as a freshman. Maybe we were all a little bit too excited about him. Like, you know, maybe maybe the pandemic wreaked some havoc in terms of what our scouting eyes looked like at the time. Because part of the deal with Marcus was like late in his high school season was when he really started to have a chance to be a one and done, we thought. Um, he wasn't quite there yet, it seemed like. But 
I think he probably would have gotten drafted if he would have declared after his freshman season. I think it would have been like not a great advantageous situation. Like probably would have been on a two way, but like, I think that someone would have given him a shot for sure. Very, very interesting athlete at six foot eight with seven foot wingspan athleticism and can shoot all of those tools. If he can put them together, I, I, I hope that he does because there's some real upside there. Yeah, that's a good call. That's a good. I think a lot of people forget about Bagley, maybe even forget that he's still in college basketball, but very much a real prospect and somebody that I just hope we get to watch. Like every year somebody gets hurt, I get disappointed because I'm rooting for all of these kids. I want to watch basketball at a high level and see all of these prospects play. It's about time we get to see Marcus Bagley back on a, a basketball court. Yeah, totally agree. I, I'm, I really, really hope that it goes well for Marcus. Uh, okay. That's all I've got. Uh, spins cooking corner. How did that go for you this week? Oh, this was a lot of fast food week for the Spinella household. Uh, not a lot of time at home to do a ton of cooking, which is, yeah, really unfortunate. I always hate when that happens. Um, but, uh, a respectfully bussin Popeye's chicken sandwich was the last thing I ate before getting into the podcast. So shout out Popeye's always killing it on that end. We got to get you away from high school kids. Respectfully bussing. I'm what trying to fit here? in. I'm trying to fit in. Just, uh, uh, anything I can do to score those brownie points, I'll take. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, it probably was a little bit of a fast food weekend. Laura made like these unbelievable like power grain bowls last night that were oh. really good. But like. I, I don't really, I didn't really cook much last week, to be honest. So I, I don't really got anything for you here. I did go see Smile over the weekend, though, which is an off the rails horror movie. Yeah. Um, really, really fun. Uh, look, it's not like super original. It's not super, you know, creative or anything. It's as soon as horror aficionados go and see it, there will be an exact movie that is your point of comparison for it based off of like the structure of the film and like what the idea of it is. But and I don't want to like give spoilers or anything on what that is, but best jump scares I've had all year in a move in a horror movie by far. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was really, really good. And spins this week, this week is Halloween ends and God, do I love Halloween. I love the Halloween movies. I, I love, let, let me be clear. I love the first Halloween movie, really. The sure. first Halloween movie is one of my favorite movies. Um, I liked the first one in the new trilogy. I didn't love the new, I didn't love Halloween Kills last year, but I, I have hopes that Halloween ends closes this up in a really high level to where uh i i'm i'm happy with it because man uh that for the first halloween movie by john carpenter is almost as close to a perfect movie uh for me as exists so i'm looking forward to this wednesday when i can go see it yeah high high praise there sam there you go i, I love the first halloween movie i think it has the most iconic score in movie history i think that the way it was shot. I think that just the way that John Carpenter builds tension, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis just arriving in, in being so ready just to be an absolute star 
uh, her poise as an actress. It's, it's, it's a staggering movie. Um, I, I think that it's one of the best movies. Um, and one of, it's certainly one of the most influential movies ever made. I, I don't think that's an opinion. I think that's a fact. Um, just given the way that the horror industry went after it, but yeah. man, absolutely adore the Halloween movies. And, uh, I need, I need this one to be good this week. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> um, but spins, my voice is dying. If you can't tell, uh, it has been dying since midway through the podcast. So let's end this thing. Now tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people about the Substack, the YouTube channel, everything you've got going on in your life. Yeah. Sam, always a pleasure being here. Thank you for being my therapy after a very long day. Uh, it was great to just turn my brain off from real-world troubles and talk hoops there. Uh, find me on YouTube. My name is Adam Spinella. Theboxand1.substack.com is where you can get any of our, our content directly to your inbox. And then follow me on Twitter at theboxand1 underscore. We're what? A week away? A little over a week away from the start of the NBA season? So this is the period of time where all of those season previews are going to be coming out. Like, it's here. Let's hit the, the publish button, send those out. But uh, really excited to have some fresher content to be talking about and, and some early returns on rookies over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. I'm pretty wiped at this point. I, part of the reason I'm so wiped is um, this morning I recorded the first of – what's going to be a really fun series that'll go up on the podcast, on YouTube, on the athletic. Um, really, really looking forward to it, but I'm just like very dead because of the work I've started to put into this thing. Um, didn't quite have the energy tonight. Did I spend, what can you do sometimes? Right. I thought you were great. And as always, you look beautiful, Sam. So no complaints uh, on my end. I don't know about that. I went golfing yesterday, by the way, got down to one eighteen. After uh, one thirty-two, I think last week. So you know, starting to get the feel back a little bit, which is good. I, I felt pumped. I bombed like a two hundred and forty-yard drive, two hundred and fifty-yard drive. Um, it's by far the best best shot of the day, and it's still sliced did, to hell. But like, did you, like, did you hit the Cleveland Guardians bat flip with your golf club and a walk? Oh like that? my goodness, Oscar Gonzalez! What yeah. a fucking, oh, that was incredible! Legend! What a Absolute legend. Shout out Oscar Gonzalez. Until next time, we'll talk soon.